0: Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, December 14th, we are studying 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1-16. through 16. King David had a big idea for the Lord, a new construction project in his capital city of Jerusalem. But the Lord had an even bigger idea for King David and for all people. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Paul Pater. Pastor Pater serves at Shepherd of the Ridge Lutheran Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio, and Hope Lutheran Church in Sheffield Village, Ohio. Pastor Pater, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, thanks for having me back. All right, Pastor Pater, we are looking at Second Samuel 7, and this is the only Old Testament text in the season of Advent that comes from Second Samuel. It might be one of the very few Old Testament texts from Second Samuel in the lectionary period, but it is a really important Advent text. And so... As we get started, let's just talk a little about Advent. We've been in this series, Old Testament Prophets, helping us through the season of Advent. This is going to be an Old Testament text for the fourth Sunday in Advent of Series B, which is the series we're in if you're using the three-year lection or your congregation. Give us just an introduction to Advent. What are we looking at? What should we be looking at in the Old Testament readings during this season?
1: Well, yeah. Well, Advent is always uh, preparation for Christmas, getting ready to celebrate once again uh, Christ coming into the world for our sake. So when we look at the Old Testament text, we're always looking to see those texts where we get little little glimpses, little pictures of how uh, Christ is going to come into the world and. Normally during Advent, we look at Isaiah, you know, Isaiah's got a bunch of, of great text for Advent and what, what the Messiah is going to look like when he comes, but uh, today we get one, like you were kind of saying before, in, in an unusual spot in Second in Samuel chapter 7. Uh, it's maybe not uh, a text that very many people are familiar with, at least not certainly as familiar as some of those texts that I was mentioning from before from Isaiah, But there are glimpses and and images, especially near the end of today's text, uh, that talk about how Christ is going to come into the world, that his kingdom is going to remain forever. And there's um, some really nice imagery of of a father and a son as well at the end of today's text that ties in with Christ and, and him coming from the Father into the world for our sake uh, so there, there. This is a very good Advent text, even though it's not one we would normally kind of think of right away when we think of Advent.
0: We often do think of the prophet Isaiah from the season of Advent, and we've looked at several of his texts already in this series. There's a few more coming. Isaiah is just that big of a deal, but this text from Second Samuel seven really forms the historical background. That's behind a lot of what Isaiah prophesies, as well as the prophet Jeremiah. We've seen prophecies from both of those men so far that really will draw from the text we're going to look at today, this promise that is made to David and this text will serve as the basis on which Isaiah, Jeremiah, other Old Testament prophets will preach when it comes to the coming kingdom of Christ as you said. So, a lot a lot of things for us to look for here as we think through this in the season of Advent, just in terms of the book itself, we're jumping in right into the middle of the narrative of 2 Samuel, really the larger Old Testament narrative. Help us set the stage. Where do we find ourselves in the story of the people of Israel, and particularly the story of King David?
1: Yeah. So um, today we're looking at chapter 7, but to really kind of get some more background, we're going to go back a couple of chapters to chapter 5. So in cap- in chapter 5, uh, David is anointed as the, the king of Israel. He's going to replace Saul, um, who was the first king. Uh, David starts reigning when he's 30 years old, and he reigns for for 40 years. So he uh, is in Hebron, and he he reigns over Judah there for about seven years, six months. And then eventually in Jerusalem, he's going to reign over all of Israel and Judah for the next 33 years. Um, So we see David being established as king, and he goes and and defeats um, many of his enemies. He goes and defeats the the Philistines that are kind of constantly um harassing the israelites and that's the end of chapter five as he defeats the philistines and he he brings home the ark of the covenant in chapter six and when he brings it home he makes a great big deal out of it um he dances before the lord with all his might you see this procession going into town and, and David is dancing and, and carrying on. And his wife, who's actually uh, the daughter of Saul, um, his wife sees David carrying on and, and gets quite upset about it. Um, and she confronts David. They have a great big argument. And that chapter ends by saying that this wife of David had no children to the day of her death. So it's really kind of a dark um, close to the previous chapter of, yes, this is great that the Ark has been brought back into Jerusalem, but there's also this kind of dark side of Saul's daughter being pretty mad at David um, over kind of his flaunting and and, and um, dancing before the Lord with all his might, which I just think is a, a funny phrase in the, the text there. that I just pictured David just you know, absolutely going crazy dancing. But now that they've got the Ark of the Covenant home, the problem there becomes, well, where do we put this thing? Um, We don't really have a special place to put the Ark of the Covenant. This is God's presence among his people. It should have a great, big, grandstanding building. At least that's what David's thinking is, and that gets us into today's text when he tries to build a a house for God and a house for the the Ark.
0: It is a a moment where it's like David gets to pause, and he gets to take a deep breath. And again, we we could talk tons of context here, but even if you go a little bit farther back than 2 Samuel 5, and you just think of how David ascended to the throne, he starts off as one of Saul's trusted advisors trusted warriors one of Saul's musicians in fact and and because of the anointing that David has received to be the next king Saul quickly grows jealous of him and Saul tries to kill David on multiple occasions David has to run and hide from Saul Saul finally dies, and David doesn't secure his kingdom, as you said, for, for quite some time, those seven years where he's ruling really only over Judah, and, and the rest of Israel is not necessarily under his leadership. All of this very tumultuous way in which David has come to the throne of Israel. Now, finally, there's a moment of rest, His enemies are no longer fighting against him, particularly the Philistines, and the Ark of the Covenant is there in Jerusalem. The Lord's presence is there. But as you said, there's this this hanging, hanging thread there. Where will we put it? Thus far, the Ark has dwelt in the tabernacle in this tent, and and that really does set the stage. One more thought, and, and maybe just to throw this out there, and we might come back to it. We, you mentioned about David's wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul, who disagrees very vehemently with what David does in terms of his dancing before the Lord, and she's said that she's childless there at the end of chapter 6. I think that, that really does stand in contrast to some of the promises we're going to get that the Lord makes to David toward the end of our reading, that David's going to have descendants. We've got a wife here who's childless, yet David's going to have descendants. I, there's just something to, maybe maybe we can come back to that a little bit later, that contrast that's there, that the Lord's going to be fulfilling a promise in an unusual way or a different way. We, we get a, a taste of that here, I think, in, in 2 Samuel 6, just with that, that one mention there at the end of chapter 6, which I hadn't really noticed till you brought that out. So I, I think there might be something there. Maybe we can we can talk more about that when we get to those promises. Any more introductory material before we jump into the text?
1: Yeah, well, I'm glad you went further back and, and talked about kind of how David uh, began to, you know, be in Saul's presence, but we're actually going to get allusion even further in the text where You go back even further to when David was just a shepherd boy, you know, taking care of his dad's sheep. So that's going to come up in the text in in verse eight of God saying, yo, I, I took you from taking care of sheep to you're leading an entire country. You're leading my people. I'm the one who made you who you are. So that's kind of an important thing for David to remember, and for us to remember in this this text as well, that when God makes this this promise, this covenant with David, it's not that David's good, great, grand, and wonderful in and of himself, um, that you know he's somehow better than everybody else, like God uses him. It's like no, God uses David um, often in spite of who David is and what he what he does and what he will do. Uh, and he, uh, it, David is, is used by God to do some some pretty awesome things, and you know it's obviously from David's family line that we get the savior of the world. So uh, that's an important part of this this covenant today as well that we're going to look at.
0: So Second Samuel chapter seven, beginning at verse one. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is our text for today, 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 16. Pastor Pater, the first three verses of the chapter really set the stage. We've set the context for, for where we've been to get to this point. Again, David has just taken up residence in Jerusalem. His capital city's there. He's sitting in his palace, and he's got this bright idea. Take us into what David's thinking there at the beginning of the text.
1: Yeah, Dave. Yeah, I don't know if bright idea is the right word. Maybe, maybe David thought it was a bright idea, but we're gonna see pretty quickly that well, David and Nathan both are like, oh yeah, this is great, and then they, you know, maybe should have talked to God first. But so David wants to build uh, a massive temple to the Lord. He's gonna put the Ark of the Covenant in it, and it's gonna be this big, beautiful, glorious thing. Because right now the the Ark currently resides in a tent, you know, like the the large tent that they had, kind of according to the design of Moses's tabernacle. And David's like, man, here I am sitting in this great big house of cedar. I've got this very nice, lavish palace because I'm the king. But God's Ark is just sitting in this dingy little tent, this little temporary thing we, we need to make him uh, a permanent structure. We need to make him a great big house. And you know, we'll, it'll, it'll just be great and grand and wonderful. And and God will just really, really love this if we make this big, magnificent thing. So he's talking with the prophet Nathan about all of this. And Nathan says, yeah, David, go, go, go do what's in your heart. Uh, the Lord is with you. Um but then you get verses four and following what you read. Uh, that night, uh, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan and he's like, uh, so did I ever ask you once to build me a house to dwell in? Is that, I, I don't remember doing that. And he says, uh, I haven't lived in a house since uh, the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. So, I mean, he's going way back to exodus you know hundreds of years before uh, he's going back to exodus and saying okay i've been moving around in a tent with my people this whole time all the places that i've gone with them you know i never once said to anybody hey yo make me a house uh, that my my glory can dwell in there and he mentions. Uh, The judges as well, you know, does he say or he says, did I ever say to one of the judges, why have you not built me a a house of cedar? So uh, the Lord appears to Nathan in this dream and and says, you know, I haven't commanded this this thing to be built. Why are you why are you building it? And uh, so now we've got kind of this weird place where David and Nathan thought they were doing something Great for God, but they they never actually checked with God first to see if that's something He wanted. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's let's pick at that strand a little bit because I I think that is certainly a strand that you see in the Scriptures where people think that they're going to do something good for God, but in reality, it's not what He wanted because He didn't command them. Now, when I think of of that, the classic example in my mind actually goes back to King Saul, the one that the Lord said, you're not going to be king, and he replaced him with David. Back in 1 Samuel 15, King Saul has this great idea of his own that instead of killing all of the Lord's enemies, like the Lord told him to do, instead of killing all of the sheep of the Lord's enemies, like the Lord told him to do, he's going to spare some of those sheep, and he's going to sacrifice them to the Lord instead. And that's the excuse that King Saul gives to Samuel when Samuel comes along and confronts him. And Samuel says, look, Saul, to obey, to listen to the Lord, that's better than to sacrifice. Now, I I have trouble, though, in thinking of David like that. And maybe that's just my own prejudices. uh, When I come to the text, I know that Saul has lots of issues. And not that I don't know, you know, David certainly has his sins, no doubt. But overall, David is seen as a positive king, so I have a hard time seeing maybe the same motives of David. Whether or not his motives are there or not, the same thing does seem to be at play. And it, you know, I, I don't think the Lord's rebuke of David here is as harsh as Saul received, but there is that sense of rebuke said, David, don't get ahead of yourself. I didn't tell you to do this. Go ahead. Well, it kind
1: of reminds me of, you know, Jesus would often have conversations with Peter and the other disciples and saying, you know, you're not setting your mind on, on heavenly things. You're setting your mind on earthly things. And I think that's kind of what... Uh, david's doing here in the text he's like i'm going to build a nice earthly house for my god to dwell in um and he i think had the best intentions in mind but sinful man whenever we have the best intentions our our best intentions are still always stained by sin so you know maybe David was just trying to, to to have it so that the lord had had something as nice as he had um and i hadn't thought about it that way until just now of maybe he was just trying to say well i'm just you know some schlub king human um god obviously deserves at least the same thing I've got um but it it's It's interesting, you know, I think, too, maybe David's not thinking about it this way, but he's really trying to confine God's presence in a place that he's he's trying to say, I'm going to put the Ark of the Covenant here in this house, and it's never going to leave this place again, Um, because they fought long and hard to, to get the ark back from the Philistines after the Philistines stole, stole it. Um, maybe it's David just trying to say, I'm gonna keep this, this Ark of the Covenant under lock and key so that nobody can steal it from us ever again. Um, but I think of that that him uh, built on the rock, Uh, And verse two kind of popped in my head when I was um, getting ready for today. It says, uh, uh, surely in temples made with hands, God, the most high is not dwelling high above earth. His temple stands, all earthly temples excelling. And I I was just thinking about that, that that theme of, uh, you know, temples made with hands even as great and grand and wonderful as the this first temple is going to be that that solomon will build um it's not big enough to hold god's presence it's not big enough to confine god to one spot and that's uh um this this great thing that solomon is is going to make it's just a temple made with hands and While God is going to be in that place, he's not going to dwell there. He's not going to live there and stay there because we know the ark's going to get moved again. And um, we also know that the presence of God isn't just confined to that that ark as well. Um, But, you know, high above earth, God's temple stands and it excels all earthly temples and and churches and things like that um you know you and i we, we went to the the same seminary and i remember walking in the chapel of saint louis the first time and that chapel is huge i remember just walking in and just kind of feeling small inside it um and the temple that was built in Jerusalem was much, much, much even more bigger and grandiose than that. Um, but to think that you know God's presence isn't confined to the four walls of a chapel or the four walls of a, a temple—that um, His His presence isn't locked in that one place—and I don't know if if that's what David was trying to do, was trying to just lock up the ark and and keep it safe or. Um, really kind of what what his his plan was with this whole thing, but I want to think he had the best intentions at heart, hopefully question mark.
0: Well you know I mean it's always it's always a, a risky thing I think to start to psychologize in the scriptures where we try to find motives that aren't made explicit in the text and and I don't think there's a motive made explicit in the text here for David. So we, we should we should take care. But I do think, I think that the way that you framed it as David having his mind on earthly things, as opposed to heavenly things, I do think that that is in the text. And, and the reason I think it's in the text is because of what David does think. He says, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. That, that It seems to be going through David's mind. Look at my house compared to God's house. I need to do something for God. As if the Lord wants to dwell in a house like David does. As if David knows the mind of the Lord. And I think, you know, I I do think, just given everything else we know about David, and the fact that he, you know, he asked Nathan and the prophet about it first, which, you know, did he ask the Lord? Well, Nathan maybe didn't, at least not right away. But he, I mean, David seems pious enough. But sometimes it can be those pious intentions of ours when they're not informed by the word of the Lord, which great thanks be to God that, that God in his grace does inform David by his word. Sometimes our pious intentions, when they're not informed by the word of the Lord, can get us into the most trouble. And, and the Lord stops David from that here. I, so I really think you're, you're, you're onto something with the earthly versus heavenly. What does David have in mind? He, he's got this idea, it seems, that his own house, David's own house, the Lord should have some sort of corresponding one. And as you said, that's not quite right, because yes, the Lord is going to provide for the building of an actual structure under David's son Solomon, and he's even going to, in his grace, live there, such that if you were to pray toward the temple, you were praying toward where God was. I mean, that's just an amazing thing, that the eternal, infinite God would choose to locate himself in a place like that and of course all of that and I'm you know we're probably going to spill the beans here but it's, is pointing forward to an even greater temple which is which is where this whole text is is moving us so I, I mean i think i think david's got these pious intentions but he's not quite been informed by the word of the lord and he's a bit misdirected and so thanks be to god that he in his grace speaks his word to nathan who will in turn speak it to david and and what ends up happening and this is just the wonderful move that the text makes is that David doesn't get to be the one who builds the house. The Lord's going to build a house, and he's going to do it for David. And I think we're going to have to leave it there on this side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, December 14th. We're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1-16. through 16. We've got Pastor Paul Pater with us. He serves at Shepherd of the Ridge Lutheran Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio, and Hope Lutheran Church in Sheffield Village, Ohio. Pastor Pater, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 1-7, through 7, where David's got what seems to be a pious idea, but is thinking more earthly than heavenly thoughts that the Lord needs a house just like David's house. And the Lord in his grace speaks to Nathan, says, no, that's not what I have in mind. I never told you to build this house, David. Instead, let me remind you of some things. And so he's He's going to make a promise today. But before he does that, the Lord talks context with David. The Lord reminds David where he came from and who brought him. Take us into verses 8 and 9 of the text.
1: Yeah, so in verses eight and nine here, uh God says, All right, David, remember what I, I took you from. I took you out of the pasture, I took you from behind following after sheep, uh, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. And wherever you went, I cut off your enemies before you, and I'm gonna make you a great name, like a name of the great ones of the earth. So if you look at all of the You know, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember grammar right now. If you look at all of the people who are in charge of the verbs um, in this text, it's not David doing this stuff. It's God. God says, I took you out of this pasture. I took you from behind falling sheep. I made you prince. You know, I, I put you in charge of Israel. And wherever you went, I was the one who smacked your enemies down. Uh, And now here's my next promise for you. I'm going to make your name great. You're not going to make your name great. I'm going to do it. So God takes David, who's really uh, at uh, a young age. I mean, he's uh, a nobody. He's a shepherd boy. He's the youngest in this family. Um, And God takes this nobody shepherd boy, and makes him king of all the people of Israel. God's the one who cuts off all of David's enemies. God's the one who's going to make David's name great. David can't do any of this stuff by himself. God's the one who gives him success. God's the one who gives him um, victory after victory after victory. Um, So in the text here, it's, it's an important reminder of David coming along and saying to God, hey, God, I'm going to do all this stuff for you. And God almost saying, oh, that's really cute, David. But let me remind you how you got here. That was all me. Let, re- let me tell you a little bit about the future and how that's going to go. All of that is going to be me, too. Um, you're not going to really contribute all too much to this. In fact, it's your your son's going to be the one that, you know, as you were saying before, uh, your son's going to be the one that builds up the, the temple. Um, you're going to lay the groundwork, you're going to lay the plans, but it's really not you that's going to do this, it's going to be your son.
0: Mm. I, I do think there is a at least a mild rebuke of David in those words. Again, not that David was impious in what he was thinking, but that he was misdirected, at the very least. And, and he has reversed the directions, thinking of what he's going to do for God rather than starting, what has God done for him? And that's the tendency any person has, is to Think of, what can I do for God? That's our natural inclination. Rather, God always says, I am the giver. As you said, he's the one who does the verbs. He's the subject. He does the verb, and we're the object. We receive. And and David, at least in some sense, has reversed that here. And so I think you're right. There's, there's at least a mild rebuke of David, a reminder of, of who he was and how the Lord is the one who has brought him into the place where he where he now sits. You know, David has built this house of cedar. Well, who who really is responsible for that house to David? It's not you, the Lord says. I'm the one that's responsible for that house that you're sitting in right now. And in fact, as as that house continues, and this is where the this is where we really start to see the Advent themes of this text come out, and the reason that this text shows up in Advent is as the Lord continues into verses 10 and 11, and now it's going to go beyond what the Lord has done for David right then and there, and into what the Lord will do for Israel and then for David's family in the future. So take us into verses 10 and 11.
1: Yeah, so verse 10 here says, uh, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them uh, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Um, So if you remember anything about Israel's history, it was always pretty tumultuous. I mean, there was... Um, quite often violence and hardship. The Philistines were always harassing them. Later on, Assyria and Babylon is going to be harassing them. Um, But God says he's going to plant his people where he wants them. And again, God is the subject of all of these verbs. I'm going to appoint a place. I'm going to plant my people. Um, That The reason they're not going to be disturbed anymore is because of me. I will protect them. Um, So he says how uh, I will give you, in verse 11 here, um, I will give you rest over all your enemies, and the the Lord declares to you uh, that the Lord will make you a house. So it's kind of interesting here. This whole conversation starts because David wants to build a house for God, and God counteracts David's offer with a covenant promise. David, no. I'm you're not going to make me a house. I'm going to make you a house. I'm going to make you a a, a dynasty. I'm going to establish my kingdom through you and through your offspring. Um, So I I think it's kind of interesting here. You know, the beginning of the text, like I said, David's like, hey, God, I'm going to build you a house. And God's like, no. No. Quiet down. I'm I'm going to build you a house, but even then, that house isn't a house of cedar and and stone. It's a, a, a house that is is built on Christ and built on Christ's promises of um, forgiveness and eternal life. That that's the kingdom that's going to last forever. That we'll read here in a couple of verses. But I just I just find it very interesting that that God um, counteracts David's offer of a house with another house, but it's a house not made with hands. It's a house that's eternal in the heavens.
0: Yeah, I mean the Lord here is is a fantastic author. <laughs> he 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 plays on that word house quite well. And as you said, he's already here in verse eleven, starting to move David beyond the conception of a physical building as a house and into something else. I think you use the word dynasty. And and at least on one level, if I can say it that way, there is that promise that there's going to be a house for David in the sense that there will be a line of kings for David. But even that maybe isn't the fullest conception of the promise. And and you've already Told us, right? I mean, we're ultimately going to be talking about Christ here. How David's son is going to become David's Lord, to use the language of the Psalms. So, now I, I will say briefly, in the lectionary, the verses we're about to read actually get skipped. I'm not sure why they do that. That's beyond my. Oh, no. That's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> But, it, but in the in the lectionary it you read verses 1 through 11 then you go to, to verse 16 but you really need to know what's in these verses in between to get the full picture here so verses 12 through 15 that's again that's the interlude which you you may not hear in church when you hear this but it's it's good to know it so start taking us into the lord's going to tell david what he means by building a house what does the lord say to david
1: yeah. Uh, So verse 12, uh, when your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Um, So I'm just going to stop right there with verse 12. So uh, David, when your days are fulfilled, in other words, when you're going to die, when you're going to lay down with your fathers, which in other words means when they're going to put your body in the tomb next to your dad and all the others. Um, I'm going to raise up, God says, your offspring after you. That you're going to have someone who comes from your body, from your family line. And again, we see God's the the uh, subject of all of these verbs. That I am going to be the one who will raise up your offspring after you. I'm going to be the one, God says, who's going to establish Uh, your offspring's kingdom. Uh, And then verse 13 says, uh, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David here in verse 12 is like, oh yeah, David, you're going to die eventually. You're going to lay down your life. You're going to die. Um, You're going to lie down with your fathers in death. But it's through David's offspring that the kingdom will be established. Now, immediately, this happens with Solomon. Solomon's the one who reigns after David. Solomon builds uh, a great kingdom. Um, but ultimately, this promise sees its fulfillment in Jesus That God, the Father, is going to build up for his son uh, a house. That his throne is going to be established forever. That God's name is going to be the one that that reigns. But uh, to back up a little bit, so Solomon is going to be the one who's going to build the earthly temple, as it were, uh, that his father David envisions. But Jesus is going to be the one who builds the temple that his heavenly father envisions i think of the, the text where jesus tells the the pharisees and the others you know tear down this this temple and i'll build it back up in three days and everybody thinks that he's talking about the temple that they're standing in and that's what john's gospel tells you no jesus was talking about his body as that temple uh, that God the Father was going to establish the throne of Christ's kingdom forever in that temple, and that nothing could destroy Christ's kingdom. Because, spoiler alert if you want to, you know, listen and, and hear the rest of the text on what's going to happen to the temple, eventually, this temple that David envisions and that Solomon builds, it's going to be come in and destroyed by the Babylonians. And then Um, When the temple is rebuilt, the people who knew what the first temple looked like cried because it didn't compare with that first temple. Then fast forward to Jesus' time and after uh, Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension, um, that second temple that was built with earthly hands gets destroyed by the Romans. Um, so, and it's interesting too that as as Jesus talks about His body as the temple, His body is going to be killed by Roman soldiers, but God's going to raise that temple up on the third day when Jesus rises on Easter morning. Um, so there's there's a whole lot going on in these verses. I don't know why the lectionary folks skipped them, because there's some really, really good, like, gospel-y, Jesus-y stuff in these
0: verses. No, that's that's exactly right. And, and as you said, Solomon, you can see him as a fulfillment of this text in part. And this is, this is often true in the Old Testament, where the prophets will speak and you will see something happen in the very immediate future that says, yeah, that's that's what he was talking about. But there's also these hints throughout that eh, that's not everything that he was talking about. Because Solomon's house that he builds for the Lord, that temple, as you said, was destroyed by the Babylonians. And, and Solomon, in terms of establishing his kingdom forever, well, Solomon does a pretty good job of reigning with wisdom. He falls away to a degree later in life and loses some of the kingdom. And even his son then gets a great majority of the land ripped away. So again, you're sort of left scratching your head. Was that it? What's what's going on here? And I, this is where this text really becomes the point of contention later on for the people of Israel, particularly during the time of the exile and afterwards. Is the Lord doing this? And that's where some of those other prophecies from Isaiah and Jeremiah come in and say, you guys need to, to understand this correctly. We're, we're talking about not just a, a building here, we're talking about a person, the temple who is Jesus. And think of those words, you, know, you brought up John chapter 2, where Jesus talks about destroying the temple that is his body. Even in John chapter 1, where John says the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. There's There's... God dwelling among his people. Here's the temple. It's it's Jesus. And so there's there's tons of connections here. And this is why, you know, for example, in the the genealogy that Matthew gives, the fact that Jesus is in the line of David is such a big deal. Or the reason that Joseph, when he adopts Jesus, and Joseph is a son of David. That's a really big deal. Or that, that, you know, they're going to the town of David, Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2. All of these connections go back to this very text and this promise that the Lord makes. And you see how ultimately Jesus is the temple that God has in mind, the house in which he dwells forever and in which he establishes his kingdom through the line of David forever. Now, now, perhaps, having said that, maybe some of the difficulty comes in verse 14, where, where you get words that, well, if we're going to apply this to Jesus, and eh, now, now how does this work? So, so verse 14, the Lord is speaking again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. So, I mean, if we're talking about Solomon... No problem there. But if we're talking about Jesus, well, how do words like that apply to Jesus? Yeah. So
1: it's obviously not that Jesus committed iniquity or sin. He can't do that. He's God. But I, I think of texts like Isaiah 52 and 53 that the Lord laid on him, you know, talking about Christ, the iniquity of us all. So Jesus is this really weird paradox of that he is the sinless son of God, but on the cross he becomes the worst sinner of all time because he takes all of humanity's sins upon himself. Um, He takes everyone's sin from Adam and Eve all the way down to the last person that's ever going to exist. He takes all of that upon himself. And when he was going to the cross, he was beaten up by the soldiers who um, were supposed to be guarding over him. He was struck repeatedly. They spit on him. They mocked him. Uh, and it, it talks about uh, the the stripes of the sons of man in today's text, and I I thought about that that text from Isaiah that by his stripes by his wounds we are healed. So again, you've got this. Anytime I hear father and son imagery in scripture, my brain automatically jumps to God the Father with His Son Jesus. So. Again, it's not that Jesus committed iniquity, but when Good Friday comes along, the Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all, and Jesus is bearing the punishment that we deserve from our for our sins. Um, but verse 15 here has, has a a great bit of gospel in it as well. But my steadfast love will not depart. From him, So God's steadfast love doesn't depart from Christ, and it doesn't depart from us either. And it's not because you and I are, are good, great, grand, and wonderful in and of ourselves, um, but it's because of what Christ did for us on Good Friday, that as he took upon himself the iniquity of us all, he gives us his perfect keeping of the law. He gives us His steadfast love and mercy, even though we haven't earned it, even though we haven't deserved it, even though we try to deserve it when we, you know, go out and do all these things that we think, oh, God's absolutely going to love this if I do this for Him. (laughs) And it's usually things that are just not anywhere remotely close to what God wants us to do. Um, But that steadfast love of God, nothing can take that away from us. And that's what Uh, The Lord's trying to tell David here in this text, you know, he tells David, you're going to die. You're going to lie down with your fathers, but I have steadfast love for you and for your offspring, which includes Jesus, who's going to be born uh, in Joseph's house uh, and, and living in the you know, there, there's quite a few times where Jesus is called the son of David, you know, even though he's Joseph's son um, through adoption, there's this image of him being David's son as well, and being this mm-hmm. fulfillment of this this text that we see here in Second Samuel.
0: Yeah, I mean, Jesus, even during Holy Week, brings that up to the, the Pharisees and his opponents about what does it mean that David's son is also David's Lord. And I think the way you explained verses 14 and 15 and the matter of committing iniquity, I think it was very helpful. It's not that Jesus is the one who committed iniquity, but rather, to use the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him, that is, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. That's, that's how it is, that, that God took all of our sins and he placed them on Jesus and then there on the cross Jesus did receive the stripes of the sons of men he received the stripes that that we deserved so that by those stripes we are healed but as you said my steadfast love will not depart from him and i think i mean i think there you get an echo of the resurrection even in this text and even even too back in verse 12 where the lord tells david you know you're going to die but i'll raise up your offspring after you I mean, at the point of David's death, you know, Solomon's already been born. It's not like Solomon's going to be born right at that moment. He's already been born, and now he's going to be established. And and in, those, in both of those words, you know, I will raise up your offspring after you. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Thinking through what happens with Jesus, I, I really think of the resurrection. You know, remember how Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 on that first Pentecost, and, and he tells the people listening, look, David is dead, and I could show you his tomb over there. But not Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is alive. He has been raised, this one you crucified. He has been raised to be your Savior. And, and as you said, what that means, the fact that God's steadfast love didn't depart from Jesus, that means that it won't depart from all who are in him. All right, what, what now, Peter? Repent and be baptized. Believe in Jesus for salvation. Because all who are, who are in him, well, they are a part of this everlasting kingdom. That God promises, and to be a part of that everlasting kingdom, that means, I mean, life forever for for all of us. Pastor Peter, we got about four minutes here to to wrap things up, to give us the Advent good news from from Second Samuel seven, and ultimately all of Jesus' ministry. Yeah,
1: um, well, looking at the near the, the end of the text here, um, God does give him this great promise, like you were saying, of your house and your kingdom are going to be made sure forever. Now, he's not talking about David's earthly kingdom. David's earthly kingdom is going to fall apart. The second David dies, it's no longer his kingdom. It's, it's Solomon's now. But he's talking about the, the heavenly kingdom that his descendant Jesus is coming into the world to, to bring, not only for the people of Israel and not only for the house of David, but for the entire world from Adam and Eve all the way down to the last person who's going to be born, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is for all people. There's a, a web comic artist I, I really like. His name is Adam Ford, and he had a, a beautiful, um, well, really kind of dark image. You, you mentioned that Second Corinthians text. He had that text at the bottom of the comic, And it was a black outline of Jesus on the cross. And on him were written all sorts of sins, uh, adultery, pornography, anger, you know, whatever. I mean, and the the whole thing was just full. This this whole image of Jesus was just covered with these words. Um, And I put it on the screen every Good Friday so that people can know here's what Jesus has done for you. He's taken all of this upon himself. He's taken all of your sin on himself to show you that his steadfast love will not depart from you, that he has a kingdom waiting for you. And you can't earn it, you can't deserve it, but he freely gives it to you because he loves you. Um, so that's a, a really great uh, reminder, not only in, in Good Friday, but you know, especially as we're in the middle of Advent right now, that, that great reminder of God's steadfast love for us in Christ, and that that steadfast love uh, remains
0: forever. Pastor Paul Pater is the pastor at Shepherd of the Ridge Lutheran Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Also, Hope Lutheran Church in Sheffield Village, Ohio, helping us this morning with 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 16. Pastor Peter, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Have a good Advent. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, has no end. He is the Savior who has taken all your sins upon himself, died and risen for you to give you his righteousness and make you a member of his eternal kingdom now and forever.